0: Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Gilbert Metcalf, the John DiBiaggio Professor of Citizenship and Public Service, Professor of Economics, and Graduate Program Director at Tufts University's Department of Economics. I'll talk to Gib about his new book, Paying for Pollution, Why a Carbon Tax is Good for America. We'll learn why he thinks that a carbon tax is the smartest way to deal with the problem of climate change, and why it's preferable to other policy approaches. We'll also talk about some common critiques of carbon pricing, including concerns that these policies can be particularly harmful to low-income populations. Stay with us. Gilbert Metcalf, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. It's a pleasure to be here. So Gib, we're going to talk today about your new book, Paying for Pollution, Why a Carbon Tax is Good for America. But before we do that, uh, we always like to learn a little bit about the background of our guests on the show. So could you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in pursuing research on energy and the environment?
1: Even before I went to graduate school, I was doing energy-related policy work. I actually was doing anti-nuclear work back in the 1970s around the construction of the Seabrook nuclear power plant. I went and got a master's in environmental and resource economics at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, which has a very nice program. And that's where I really realized that, that I wanted to approach policy questions like nuclear power from the framework of economics. And so when I went to Harvard and I studied uh, public finance under Marty Feldstein, I really began to sort of meld my tax interests with my energy interests uh, in a lot of the papers I did after that, and that work uh, eventually kind of morphed into my uh, into my current work on on climate policy.
0: Great. Are you still out there um, protesting the construction of nuclear power plants? Did you did you go to Georgia and uh, get <laughs> get down there with the Vogel plant?
1: Well, it's actually funny. I, I, uh, obviously, once you start to think about climate change, you realize that we have to rethink our views on nuclear power. And, and of course, like many others who were involved in anti-nuclear activities in the 1970s, I've done that. I, I still feel that nuclear power, we've got real issues around safety and nuclear proliferation and cost. But I think uh, you, you just can't take it off the table as, as a possible uh, policy solution. But right. it's very funny because I, I I teach a class in energy economics to Tufts, and I uh, once took my class up to the Seabrook Nuclear Power Plant. We got a tour, and we had a sit down with with one of their environmental uh, education officers, and he's talking about the history of the project, and he says, oh yes, and the Clamshell Alliance was protesting, and I bet, he says, I bet your professor was out front on the picket line holding a sign up protesting the plant. And I said, well, in fact, I was arrested at Seabrook uh, (laughs) during the Clamshell Alliance occupation and spent two weeks in the New Hampshire Armory. And you should have seen the looks on my students' faces.
0: (laughs) <laughs> wow, that's great. What a story. Oh, fantastic. So, um well, that's definitely the subject of, of another podcast uh, that we'll have to have you back on in the future. Um, But but let's get into this new book, uh, Paying for Pollution. So as you mentioned, you've published extensively on energy and environmental topics and academic journals and and technical books and lots of great work on all sorts of topics, but particularly tax policy is certainly what I have uh, known you best for. But Paying for Pollution, the the new book, it doesn't use technical language and there aren't equations uh, strewn throughout the book. It's really easy to understand for a non-expert. I was able to read it last week and I really, enjoyed it. So why did you want to write this book, and who is your intended audience?
1: So I think there's a lot of good technical writing on the problem of climate change and what the possible solutions are. Just as one example, the recent book by Larry Goulder and Mark Hapstead from RFF is a terrific uh, book on sort of the technical details of climate modeling. But I wanted to reach a general audience that worries about climate change but doesn't necessarily have a science or economics background. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, I, I kind of I had a reader in my mind as I was writing the book. It was a Capitol Hill staffer. Maybe he 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 or she uh, was an English major in college, but no background in economics or science. And their boss, uh, her boss, comes in the room and says, you know, a senator or, or a congressman says, "What do I need to know about climate change and carbon taxes?" And and the staffer could just pull my book off the shelf and and have everything they needed right there.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And um, you know, I think I think there definitely is a is a big audience out there for this book, and I, I hope our listeners will will pick it up after being piqued by this conversation. So so let's get into some of the topics that you cover in the book. The the subtitle is Why a Carbon Tax is Good for America. And it might surprise some listeners to hear an economist say that a tax could be good. Um, but you spend a full chapter describing how a price on pollution, like a carbon tax, can make society better off. So can you give us a little overview on why economists tend to like carbon taxes?
1: Carbon taxes are a simple, elegant solution that goes back gosh, 100 years to when Pigou, the British economist, uh, came up with the idea. And what's particularly appealing about it is that it it has tremendous bang for the buck. In in other words, if we want to reduce pollution by whatever your goal is, 20% reduction, 50%, 80%, you can do it at much lower costs using a carbon tax than regulations or subsidies to clean energy or any of the other possible options that are out there so it it's it's cost effective in the jargon of economics it's also simple to administer because at least in the united states you can piggyback on existing fuel excise taxes on most of our carbon fossil fuels we have uh we have existing excise taxes so it's 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 easy for treasury to run this thing and from a from the perspective of a business electric utility or an energy intensive manufacturer, it is an easy tax to comply with. They may not like paying the tax, but it's easy to comply with in the sense that they're already paying excise taxes on fuels and uh, and they're used to paying taxes. So we have a whole structure in place for that. Right. So that's that's a lot of the benefit. And the last thing I'll just mention is that when we say that a carbon tax is good for America, what we're really saying is that if we're going to tackle climate change, we can do it with a tax that will raise revenue that we can use in productive ways, either to help address efficiency concerns or equity concerns in a way that you can't do with regulation. And that's why why I say it's good for America.
0: Yeah, and we're going to come to some of those equity concerns and efficiency issues uh, as we continue our conversation. One A substantial part of the book is looking at alternative policies, some of which you've already mentioned, uh, subsidies for renewable energy or carbon capture and sequestration, um, regulation on vehicles or power plants, energy efficiency standards. Can you talk a little bit more about why, in your view, a carbon tax is preferable to those types of existing policies? Sure.
1: So we could sort of go through them uh, in serenity, but let me just give a couple of examples. I mean, this is the topic of one whole chapter, chapter four in my book. So if we look at subsidies, one of the problems with subsidies is that they're wasteful. So you're giving money to people to do things that they may already be planning to do. So that's a problem. They can also be regressive in the sense that that with subsidies that typically happen through the tax code, most of these benefits go to higher income households, because these are the people who are paying taxes. So subsidies aren't a great approach. Regulations can have unintended consequences. So for example, I talk about the sport utility vehicle loophole, SUV loophole that's in the cafe, the mm-hmm. fuel economy standards, I talk about this in the book. Where that whole loophole came about because of the fact that at the time when CAFE was first put in place, SUVs were really not a big deal in the marketplace. And this loophole was put in place to protect one factory in Detroit. And so that loophole was put in place, thinking, and Congress thought, ah, it won't have any real impact on the market. And all of a sudden, uh, the demand for SUVs exploded as the baby boomers began to buy, buy cars. So again, unintended consequences is always a problem. You know, you've got information and voluntary programs, uh, but they're certainly helpful, but they're not up to the task of really making significant reductions in emissions. So that's why I end up saying that the tax is the best way to go.
0: Right. Because the tax could sort of cover the broader base of activities that we're interested in and, you know, if designed appropriately, would cut out or avoid some of these loopholes um, that, that might appear in other policies. Exactly. One prominent uh, focus of environmental advocates over the last several years in particular has been, uh, it, instead of focusing on a carbon tax or some other type of carbon pricing mechanism, uh, many groups have focused more on an approach, uh, that's called keep it in the ground, uh, which essentially tries to constrain the production of fossil fuels wherever possible. Um, what are some of the merits of that approach, uh, or, or problems with that approach relative to a carbon tax?
1: I think in principle, it's a great idea because that's ultimately what we need to do. We need to keep fossil fuels in the ground unless we can come up with cost-effective, affordable carbon capture and sequestration approaches. And and we don't have those at present. So if we ignore that, if uh, if we ignore CCS, then keeping in the ground sounds great. The problem as I see it is that I would call it a disorderly solution in the sense that it's really difficult for businesses to do long-range planning when they're looking at a campaign to keep fossil fuels on the ground. And here's what I mean. If we look at the Keystone XL pipeline, this is really one effort to try to to strand some of the Canadian uh, fossil fuels, not make them uh, available
0: to market. Right. The oil sands in Alberta in particular. Exactly.
1: So this is a disorderly solution in the sense that there's a lot of political uncertainty. Will it get built? Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Uh, we've already seen a number of reversals with political wins and political administrations. So how do you plan as a as a as uh, an energy intensive industry, trying to think about what the cost of fossil fuels is going to be in the future? The other issue I see is that The the keeping-in-the-ground approach is going to bring out the owners of these fossil fuel assets who are going to put up a fierce fight, and this is just going to contribute even more to the political uncertainty as to whether that approach is effective or not. In contrast, if you think about a carbon tax, you can do it more gradually as opposed to this sort of on-off, we either keep them in the ground or we don't. Uh, with a with a carbon tax, it gives us time to to allow the economy to adjust to the higher price of fossil fuels, and that lowers the overall costs of of getting to a zero carbon economy because transition costs are always expensive. So you want to try to do it smoothly, and it also gives us some time to address the political opposition. If you can get a carbon tax in the door, you get the foot in the door, and then. That To me, that's 90% of the battle. And then, then you just have to, over time, get the carbon tax up to levels that will, will help us get to our, our carbon reduction goals. Right. Now, having said that, we're going to need other policies. Just to be clear, we need, we, we need a lot of R&D. Uh, we need other things as well. But, but I think a policy of just saying we're going to keep the stuff on the ground is, I suspect,
0: not going to be successful. So so one of the points you raised with the keep it in the ground approach is the sort of difficulty in planning for, for businesses that may or may not be affected by the, the construction of a particular pipeline or the development of a particular resource, and that that volatility can be a challenge. One of the other points you make in the book is associated with an alternative approach to uh, pricing carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, uh, the so-called cap-and-trade approach. Um, and you talk quite a bit about volatility in um, carbon markets uh, in existing cap-and-trade programs. So that was one of the one of the difficulties with cap-and-trade as, as you laid it out in the book. Can you talk a little bit more about that and uh, some other issues with cap-and-trade uh, relative to carbon taxes and sort of how you see the uh, trade-offs between those two approaches? Sure.
1: And Just to start, I want to be clear that that a cap-and-trade program, like a carbon tax, is is a market-based mechanism in the jargon of economics. It's a way to put a price on pollution. And either of these approaches are far superior to some of the alternatives we just talked about. I would much prefer cap-and-trade to to subsidies or regulation. But if we can get a carbon tax, I think it does have some benefits relative to cap-and-trade. And I, I talk about uh, price volatility under cap-and-trade systems in the book. That's problematic from the point of view of businesses who are trying to make long-lived investments uh, in, in expensive energy technologies. We've seen that in the acid rain program. And we've seen that in the EU's emission trading system. So that's an issue. The administrative complexity of running what is essentially a financial derivative program and running it through environmental agencies gives me some pause. And the example in the EU ETS uh, in the early years of the program where there was some cyber theft in the Czech Republic and some other areas of Europe where allowances were being stolen electronically, that's a real issue that you have to grapple with. But I think the biggest issue is the fact that you have these adverse policy interactions. And what I mean by that is one thing we know about politicians is they like to do stuff. So if we look at California, they have a cap and trade program. Well, they also have a renewable portfolio standard and they have low carbon fuel standards. And the problem with cap and trade is if you layer these other policies in place, you might think, oh, gosh, this is great because it's just we're we're, we're sort of belts and suspenders. We're really tackling this problem. But the problem is these other approaches, all they'll do is lower the, the allowance prices without leading to any additional emission reductions because the cap is the cap. So if you're trying to incentivize firms to come up with new technologies, new inventions, induced innovation, That low price because of these complementary policies is a real problem with cap and trade. And you don't have that with a carbon tax.
0: Right. You also talk in the book about how in a number of programs, there are these price floors and price ceilings, sometimes called price collars. Um, and when those come into effect in cap and trade program, basically the allowance price you know, can't go above a certain amount, it can't go below a certain amount. And so the cap ends up turning into more of a carbon tax policy than, than a cap and trade policy. And we see these kind of hybrid approaches in, in places like California and uh, the the regional greenhouse gas initiative in the in the northeastern United States.
1: Well, that's right, and 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 Dallas Bertrand RFF has a very nice paper right now about uh, cap and trade programs, and what he's pointing out is that because of a lot of these complementary programs, cap and trade programs typically the prices are bouncing around at the floor level, and so as you say, the cap and trade program is is acting like a carbon tax. Without the benefit of the carbon tax, in the sense that we're not getting a high enough price to really get the kind of of, of responses that we
0: would like to, uh, to get in terms of reduced emissions. Right, and then just briefly on the complexity topic, uh, the first job I had after grad school, I got hired by Richard Newell and Billy Pizer at Duke and we were working on a, a paper on cap and trade programs and I spent probably the first year of my professional life trying to understand how the EU ETS worked. Um and uh and it was uh quite the undertaking. I'm still I'm I'm still pretty sure I don't understand about half of it. But yeah, those programs can get really complicated and and the administration issue I, I'm sure is pretty substantial. I think so. So let's turn to one of the most common critiques of uh, greenhouse gas pricing and carbon taxes in particular, um, which is the notion of regressivity. So a central argument for for many who oppose these programs is that they argue that the policy will be regressive, that is disproportionately harmful to low-income or other sensitive populations. Um, What's your take on that uh, critique?
1: In terms of low-income populations, I think the issue is overstated if not simply wrong there's a lot of good research that's come out in the last few years that shows that even if you ignore the use of revenue carbon taxes can be progressive so you've got work by the department of treasury the office of tax analysis did a did a a distributional analysis of of carbon taxes in 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 a paper they wrote looking at how a methodology for enacting a carbon tax. You've got work by Larry Goulder and Mark Hafstead that I mentioned before. And what this research shows is that people typically focus on the fact that energy expenditures are are a larger share of the income of lower income households than of higher income households. And that's where that view that carbon taxes are regressive uh, comes from. Right. But the reality is is that carbon taxes are also going to affect factor incomes, payments to workers, wages, and and payments to owners of capital, interest and dividends, and so forth. And what the research shows is that that impact of how a carbon tax affects the sources of income, your wages or capital income, and so forth, that that actually is, is hitting higher income households uh, through hits on capital income more than it's hitting lower income households who rely more on on wage income, and the the other factor that makes carbon taxes uh, potentially progressive is that most transfer payments that that households receive and transfer payments whether it be social security or or other kinds of benefits, these are received by lower income households disproportionately, and these transfers uh, are either explicitly or implicitly uh, indexed against inflation. Right. So to the extent that prices do go up under a carbon tax, anyone who's receiving Social Security or, or or other transfer payments is going to be insulated against against those cost increases. So we haven't even talked about how we use the revenue Uh, When I was talking about the fact that a carbon tax could be progressive and one thing I've been harping on all the way back to 1999 when I wrote my first paper on this uh, topic, I want to emphasize that we're doing a carbon tax reform, not a carbon tax and the point here is is that we're going to collect a lot of revenue. $100 billion a year or or more, potentially, depending on the the tax rate. And you can use that revenue in ways that that enhances the progressivity of of the reform even more. So if you look at the Climate Leadership Council's proposal to give dividends, household dividends, to everyone in America, that would be extremely progressive. But even if you didn't do that, you could do reductions in taxes on wages, Uh, or other things that would, if not be uh, progressive, at least be distributionally neutral. So it really becomes a lever that policymakers can tweak to get whatever level of progressivity they want.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And. So separate from the progressivity or regressivity of a carbon tax is the concern that some policymakers have expressed that uh, a carbon tax or any type of substantial carbon pricing policy would be really harmful to the US economy. You overview some examples of jurisdictions uh, internationally that do have substantial carbon prices. And and what do you find about the broader economic impacts of those types of policies?
1: So all the evidence shows that Whether we look at Sweden's carbon tax, which is on the order of $135 a ton right now, or the British Columbia carbon tax, which is in the 30s, uh, a $30 range currently, they have not wrecked the economy. Now, you could argue that economic growth hasn't gone up, but you can't find really any evidence that it's gone down. The biggest impacts you find is in the composition of the workforce. It's true that carbon intensive industries are going to hire fewer workers. So coal miners, those jobs are going to go away with a serious carbon tax. That's 50,000 jobs in the United States currently. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you've got a lot of green jobs that will be incentivized by a carbon tax in solar installation, uh, wind farm production, manufacture. And the Department of Energy uh, employment reports that they put out in 2015 and 17, I think the years were, show that you've got hundreds of thousands of jobs that have been created. So you, you do get a change in in the composition of the workforce. But in terms of overall impacts,
0: it's not a big deal. Right. Okay. So So we've touched a little bit on some of the the merits, some of the critiques of carbon taxes. Let's turn now to the sort of politics of it uh, and the prospects for a policy like this being implemented in the US. What do you think about uh, the likelihood of uh, any type of meaningful carbon tax being implemented at the federal level anytime soon. And you also mentioned earlier that sort of once the foot was in the door with the carbon tax, then it could be raised uh, further in the future. So can you talk a little bit about what gives you confidence that once a tax like this is in place, it could be sort of increased over time to to deal with the problem as, uh, as it evolved?
1: So I've learned never to predict uh, when something will happen. <laughs> right. But but what what comes to my mind uh, when I'm asked that question is the statement by Winston Churchill in the run up to World War II. Winston Churchill said about America that Americans will always do the right thing after they've tried everything else. And I, and that's kind of where I think we are with with carbon policy. We've done lots of of, of tax credits and other subsidies. Uh, We've done lots of regulation. We've done lots of information programs. The one thing we haven't done is to put a price on carbon. And I think we're seeing uh, greater interest. We're seeing more Republicans that are actually in Congress talking about it. So I think it's just a matter of time. The the most recent national uh, assessment report, I think, really brought home starkly how important it is for federal policy. Uh, for us to come up with federal policy on this. And the carbon tax
0: is just the, the the best way to do it. Right. And that's volume two of the most recent national climate assessment I, I think you're referring to. Um, yes. And and how about the idea that once the foot is in the door, um, that raising the price over time would be something uh, that you would have some some hope for?
1: So I think the one thing about a tax is that you have a constituency to support the tax, which is whoever's getting the revenue from that tax, right? And the the Joint Committee on Taxation is is always very careful to protect revenue sources uh, as they're thinking about new policies. So I think right there, that's a built-in constituency. I'm also I also th- this is one area where I think economists have not thought about this carefully enough in, in, in the following sense. So Ted Halstead, who leads up the, the Climate Leadership Council, is arguing for a carbon tax with with revenues returned to households. And part of the appeal is it's revenue neutral, so opponents of big government don't tangle up the question of how big government should be with the question of climate policy. That's appealing. But more than that, uh, uh Halstead makes the argument that the only way we're going to get to carbon tax rates that are that are high enough to really make a difference is if households are getting this money back and can see a direct link to the carbon tax. And I think there's a lot of merit to that argument. You build a pretty strong constituency to support uh, increase in the carbon tax rate if you know that that's going to lead to a 10% increase or whatever in in the dividend check that you're getting on a quarterly basis, say. Right. Economists have long been focused on this double dividend hypothesis, the idea that you can use a carbon tax to reduce other distorting taxes, which has real efficiency benefits. But I think where economists have not really thought sufficiently deeply is is that while efficiency is certainly a good thing. There's a lot to be said for equity, particularly after the most recent tax reform uh, with the cuts in in corporate income tax rates and also in political feasibility. I think the reform is going to have to whatever will make a carbon tax actually possible in this country. It will it will depend a lot on how we use the revenue and the dividend approach may end up being the approach. I'm not saying it will be, but it could be the approach. That helps us forge a coalition that could actually get this thing enacted.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I think makes me think of a, another recent book uh that I read by uh Barry Rabe uh, from the University of Michigan called Can We Price Carbon, uh, which focuses on some of the political uh and constituency challenges of of implementing policies like these over time. Right. So so we've really just scratched the surface on on so many of these topics and um and and I wanna recommend to to listeners that they that they check out the book, which is called Paying for Pollution uh, by Gib Metcalf. And um, so let's close out this episode uh, the way we close out all of our episodes, which is to ask uh, our guests what you have read or watched or heard recently related to energy and the environment that you think is really interesting and uh, that you'd recommend to our listeners. Uh, so we call this the top of the stack. So Gib, what's at the top of your stack?
1: Ah. Well, two books that I recently finished that I thoroughly enjoyed uh, that I would recommend. One is actually not a new book. It, it, it's a, a book that came out about uh, four years ago by Elizabeth Colbert called The Sixth Extinction mm-hmm. which uh, I just found impressive both for uh, the content in terms of putting our current impacts on on sort of species extinction in, in, in perspective, but also just as a great example of, of how, good technical writing can be done to be accessible uh, to to readers, and that was yeah. certainly a, a model for me.
0: Yeah, she's a great writer.
1: The other book that gave me lots of food for thought is, is a book called Amity and Prosperity, One Family in the Fracturing of America. What it really highlighted for me is the importance of state regulatory policy in energy development And I think this is something that energy researchers often don't think hard enough about. We think about national policy, we think about taxes, we don't think about the monitoring and oversight uh, that is crucial for environmental well-being.
0: Yeah, so that that book is uh, Amity and Prosperity by Eliza Griswold, who also writes for the New Yorker and um you know as someone who's who's worked on the topic of shale development quite a bit, I completely agree that the issue of regulatory enforcement, uh sort of the attention that we pay to it and and even how we measure it is um woefully understudied and uh, definitely deserves more attention. So two great recommendations. Um, Thank you so much for that and for coming on to Resources Radio and telling us about your new book, Paying for Pollution, Gib Metcalf, Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Daniel. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for joining us on Resources Radio. We'd love to hear what you think, so please rate us on iTunes or leave us a review. It helps us spread the word. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Kate Peterson, with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.